Our reading is from God's Holy Word this morning, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5 and continuing to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, that is Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You'll be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles." Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap, or it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, now having heard your word in your presence with your people on your day in the midst of a worship service committed to you, we would ask now that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open up our minds and our hearts to behold the wonderful things that you have planned for us here in your word. Give us heightened attention, spiritual awareness. Let all the truth of this passage as it becomes clear, lodge away in our hearts and prepare us for the day when the clouds will indeed be rolled back like a scroll and the coming of the Son of Man will be upon us. Ready us for that day. Make us prepared as you now communicate powerfully your word to us. Come, in proportion to our need, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was talking to one of my elders this morning, right before the early service. They saw how long the passage was this morning. I had asked one of them to read the passage for me in the early service. You notice that didn't carry over into the second service. It got tossed back to me for the second service. He told me, he said, you know, if we read a long passage, it means we have to have a short sermon. <laughs> if that were only true. If that were only true. You know, this is a great building. I love this building. For 150 plus years, these four walls have housed the praise and the prayers of God's people week after week after week. That's not to mention the wedding covenants that have been forged within these four walls, funerals that have been performed, the baptisms, the Lord's suppers that have been shared. There's an incredible amount of legacy, spiritual legacy that has happened within these four walls. There's been quite a few churches that have started and left this facility and grown far and exceeding the, the work that these four walls could contain, those churches thriving in and around all over the greater Nashville area, even today. It's an amazing testimony. Kind of feel a little bit like we're on hallowed ground. When you think about all of the grace that's been received in this room. With that said, buildings themselves can't really bring about the power and the strength and the worship of God's people. We know quite well from the scriptures that 
the life of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church is not rooted in bricks and mortars and beautiful stained glass. This space, though housing our worship, this space is not really the house of worship. Because the house of worship, the scripture makes it very clear, it's you, the people. Peter describes the people of God as being founded on the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we get our namesake as a congregation. And you know what it calls you? Living stones, built one upon another, being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices every week as we gather in this space, pleading through the merits of Jesus Christ that they would be acceptable to God. And yet, if I were to tell you this morning that this building is going to be raised to the ground within this generation. More than a few of our hearts would skip a beat. Probably some shock would show up on our faces. And some grief would probably overtake many of us because we love the space in which God has given us to worship. And we have memories of how it is that the Lord has met us within this space. And we'd probably begin to ask some questions. When is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? What are going to be the indicators of when it happens? In, in other words, we would do a lot like the disciples do in this passage. If we were to get that word from Jesus... We would like the disciples be, be shocked with our, with our mouths falling open at this reality. But even much greater than, than us being shocked at the raising of this building would be the disciples as they witness from the Mount of Olives this glorious temple. I mean, this is a nice chapel and all. It's nothing like the temple of Herod the Great. The second great temple being built there in the first century under the auspices of the Roman Empire, the stones, the marble stones, gold-plated, sitting on the side of Mount Moriah, which, which was towering over ancient Jerusalem. Journeyers who were made their way to Jerusalem could see it from miles on out. They called it oftentimes the Golden Mountain. Because as the sun rays would hit the golden-plated temple, it would become a blinding to them, and they would often even avert their eyes from it. What's remarkable is even as this passage is unfolding, the temple is still being built. It took over four decades to build the temple, and it was just in its latter stages of construction. From the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is with his disciples, it would have been would have been visible. They would have been able to, to see it, be aware of it. And in, in Gospel of Mark, we get even a further bit of an unpacking from the disciples. We're told that they're close to it. And one of the disciples says, look, teacher, isn't it wonderful? A wonderful building with wonderful stones. Isn't it marvelous? The disciples clearly had incredible uh, admiration for this building. And they wanted Jesus to join in with them in 
looking at and being enamored by this house of worship. And yet Jesus, when he looks at the stones and he sees the gold plating, he sees a different narrative. He sees a story unfold, a, a story of darkness, a story of destruction, an obliteration of this glorious temple. Which Jesus begins to speak to his disciples in this passage, he, he borrows language that we actually see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Language that scholars call apocalyptic language, end of times language, utter destruction and disaster language. Language that's used in Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel, Zechariah and other places. Language that oftentimes was actually associated with what would happen to Israel's enemies. Which is what makes it so shocking in this passage. Because Jesus applies end of the world imagery to God's covenant people, Israel. You must see how this would have triggered in the disciples' mind. The loss of the temple. We might grieve over the loss of a chapel and house for worship, but for the disciples, they would have seen the temple as something bigger and more significant than merely a place at which to gather. The temple was a picture of the presence of God on the earth. We could go back to the Old Testament and we remember when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and the tabernacle was picked up time and time again as they traveled. But as that tabernacle traveled, it was a place that where God met with his people. He was on journey with them. He was on pilgrimage with them as they picked up the tabernacle and they carried it and they conducted their sacrifices. Of course, eventually they made it into the land of Canaan, didn't they? And in the land of Canaan, through the administration of David and then later Solomon, the dreams of what would become of a permanent place, a residence, a house for God, literally a home at which the very presence of God would descend. And didn't we see that? After Solomon builds the temple that what's called the Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud of the Old Testament came down and dwelt with his people. But you'll remember in the stories of the Old Testament that as the people of God go into exile and ultimately that temple is destroyed, Ezekiel tells us that the presence of the Lord left because of the abominations of the people, and their rejection of both the covenant promises and the covenant commands of God. This new temple... This second temple, there was such great expectation that this would be the renewal of God's people. This would be the time when the Shekinah glory of God would come back down and visit the people of God. Just like the golden days of old when the people of Israel enjoyed, enjoyed the imminency of God's presence. That's what was the expectation. And as the disciples are pointing to it and looking at its marvelousness and asking Jesus to admire it, all, all Jesus can see is its destruction. But the same thing that's happened in the past is going to happen again to this particular temple. We might ask the question, why is this passage filled with such if we could put it this way, over-the-top language, almost melodramatic kind of language, famine and pestilence and earthquakes and, 
and nations divided against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and wars and rumors of wars, this kind of language where creation itself and all of the national identities are being torn at the very fabric, that kind of image applied to Israel, God's covenant people, of whom he's been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is it that the people of Israel now are receiving the judgments that the pagan nations of old received. That's what Jesus is forecasting. Well, the realization is that Jesus is describing the end of the Israelite world. The end of the Israelite world. The era of the Old Covenant and all of its sacrifices and all of its expectations and all of its shadows and all of its symbols, Jesus here is saying there is a judgment that is going to come and it's going to fall upon the people of Israel. And you know why? Because when the Messiah came, they didn't see him. They missed him. They rejected Jesus Christ. Though they had all of those promises and the instructions of the covenants and the teachings of the Old Testament, when Jesus actually showed up on the scene, they didn't see him for who he really was. And because of it, God is in this passage showing us that he is taking the covenant that was given to Israel, a nation, and he is now taking it to the nations. He's taking it to the nations. And when the disciples hear this, undoubtedly they're going to have some questions. Teacher. Teacher. When will this be? When is all this going to take place? And what are the signs for us to be able to look out and to notice that, okay, now is the time that it's going to happen? And listen, let me tell you, that two, those two questions by the disciples are critical in understanding this passage. Far too many modern scholars have read this passage unrelated to the Old Testament, uh, even unaware of the teachings of the Old Testament and unaware of the context and the centrality of that question by the disciples. When will these things be? What things? Will the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign that it's about to take place? Well, what kind of signs? Will the signs leading to the destruction of the temple? That's what this passage is centrally about. And so as we look at this passage together, we need to see that there is a glimpse back that we need to take primarily in this passage. But as we take a glimpse back, what you're going to see also is that Jesus takes that glimpse back and he renews it. And he brings it into the present. And he casts some light into how we are to live for the future. Now, here's one of the things I want to impress upon you today. And I want you to walk away with this impression from the Lord. That we are very interested in when Jesus is going to come back. We look for the so-called signs of the times. In the scriptures, there's no encouragement to do that. In fact, what you see is the focus in this particular passage is not the forecasting of when Jesus will come in the future, but your present preparation for when he comes. Your present preparation for when he comes. That's the question. The question that this text is really pressing in on you and me is that if today were the day, are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? And are you watching 
for the signs that are the trigger points for the kind of preparation that our hearts really need. Jesus is giving us that kind of direction this morning. And he does it through this tremendous historical event known as the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And the first thing he really tells us, if you're going to be ready for this, disciples in the first century for the destruction of the temple that's going to come within this very generation, if you're going to be ready, you're going to have to first stand fast in the faith. You're going to have to stand fast in the faith. Look at verse 8 with me in the text. He says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Jesus is warning his disciples that post his ascension, there will be many who will come and say they are the Messiah. That's really true historically in the first century. You can read about it in Josephus's histories. There were many who would claim to be the Messiah. Many would claim to be Jesus' returned. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't be derailed. Don't be led astray. And there are many who are going to come and say, the world is going a certain way. Uprisings are about to happen. Tumults are about to happen. Terrible things. Catastrophes are right around the corner. These sort of things are the kind of things that people talk about. And the kind of things that we get all frenzied about and we whip each other into a frenzy about. Jesus says that's going to be the nature of the way the community works. It's going to be a sense of panic. But I want you to know a true believer is not going to be led astray by those things. He's not going to be occupied by the things of the world. Instead, he is going to face these circumstances with faith, with peace, having himself stayed upon the Lord. It reminds me of what Isaiah actually teaches to the people of God in Isaiah 26. As Isaiah was preparing the people of God for the darkness of his particular days, he tells them that this is where your peace is going to come from. He, God, will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. He will keep you in perfect peace, the one whose mind is fixed on you. Now, some of you, hopefully, right now are thinking of Colossians chapter 3, which we were talking about back in January, to set your mind on the things above. Where does the peace come from when we are in the midst of the tumults, when we are in the midst of the false prophets, when we are in the midst of the clamor of the world? Where does it come from? It comes from having your mind fixed and stayed upon Him. Do you see there's a steadfastness of faith that's required in the times between the comings of Jesus Christ. And you feel that. You feel that whether it's turning on the television or clicking with the mouse through the internet, there are many promises, many prophets, many rumors, many uprisings. And the same was true for the disciples as they begin to focus their attention on this coming destruction of their own temple. And Jesus says, listen, I want you to face this with the steadfastness of faith. I want you to trust me. I want your eyes looking at me. But the second thing he says is in verse 10 through verse 19, he says, you've got to prepare. You've got to prepare for persecution. I don't want you to be naive 
about what this experience is going to be like. I want you to be aware of what you're going to pass through, and I want you to prepare appropriately. Look at verse 10. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes, famine, and pestilence. But before all these things take place, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you up to the prisons and the synagogues and put you before kings and governors. Now, who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who were going to pass through this particular period. Why? Because this is exactly what their experience was going to be like leading up to AD 70. When Titus, the Roman emperor, would come in with the Roman army and utterly obliterate Jerusalem. He wanted them to know that the destruction of the temple will accompany these kinds of signs. What kind of signs? Persecution. Suffering. Opposition from whom? Well, we're told here from parents, from relatives, from friends from those closest to us, will actually deliver us up to the governors and even to the synagogues. Now, what's interesting to me about this is this is exactly what we begin to see when you begin to look at the second volume of of Luke's writing. Now, what is the second volume of Luke's writing? Well, it's the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. We've been told here in this passage that there's going to be persecution. There's going to be opposition. Well, let me, let me give you a glimpse into the book of Acts. Just a glimpse. Peter is threatened and arrested in Acts chapter 4. The apostles are beaten and arrested in Acts chapter 5. Stephen is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. James is killed and Peter is arrested in Acts chapter 12. Paul is reviled and driven from a city in Acts chapter 13. Paul is stoned and left for dead in Acts chapter 14. Paul is imprisoned yet again in Acts 16. A mob riot breaks out in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Jews incite opposition against Christians in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Another mob riot and action breaks out in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Paul was attacked by Jews in Jerusalem and arrested by Romans in Acts 21 to 23. I could continue. Does it sound familiar? It sounds a lot like Jesus' words. It sounds a lot of what he said would be the days leading up to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. That the gospel is going to spread. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. But as it spreads, the world's going to fight back. They're going to oppose you. They're going to attack you. They're going to seek to obliterate you. But as they do, my spirit will uphold you. My spirit will bring forth the gospel. It will accomplish its will. In fact, as my kingdom is built, it's always built within the sight of the gates of hell. Within the sight of those who will attack it. Within the purview of those who will oppose it. That's what Jesus is saying here, and he's teaching us a vitally important lesson. That if we are to follow Jesus, we cannot be surprised if we are treated like him. We can't be surprised if we're treated like him. That in this world, we have to prepare ourselves to experience the opposition from the world. John tells us this, and let me tell you, John knew a little bit about persecution. A man who was in and out of prison... His life threatened, beatings, ultimately exiled on the island of Patmos where he writes the final book of the scriptures, the book of Revelation. We should listen to John. He has a little experience in these areas. 1 John 3, verse 3, not to be surprised, he said, if the world hates you because it hated him too. 
Now, now John got those very words from his Savior. He wasn't making them up. Jesus said the very same thing in the Gospel of John. He says this, and this is important for us. If you belong to the world, the world will love you. You want to know how to be loved by the world? You want, to, you want to win the popularity contest of the world? John makes it very clear through the mouth of Jesus here. Just belong to the world. Be possessed by, have the character qualities, the desires and the commitments that are characteristic of the world. You'll be loved by the world. It's real easy. He says, but as it is, you, speaking to his disciples, you do not belong to the world. For I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I think many of us actually in our day and time, I hear pastors and churches speaking often of the PR problem that Christianity has in the local world. The struggle that we have to, to come across well, some of that we should admit to is our own doing through our sinfulness and through our hypocrisy. Some of that is because we've been faithful to the Word of God. I don't want you to be naive here. Don't think that niceness is going to get you accepted. Jesus says we should not have the false expectation that everybody's going to bow down and call Christians blessed. If the last 2,000 years of church history is meaningful at all, it means that the kingdom goes forth with and through opposition. We're not called the church militant for no reason whatsoever. We have to put on, as we've even said so far in this service, and we'll sing in just a bit, we have to put on the armor of God. We have to be ready in season and out of season. And we cannot be surprised that if we follow Jesus, people decide to treat us like him. You know, Jesus says... Persecution is coming your way, but I want to tell you a third thing. I want you to be wise. In verses 20 to 24, he says, I want you to take cover when the time is right. I want you to take cover when the time is right. Notice what he says, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you know that its desolation has come near. You know that its desolation has come near. Now, who's Jesus speaking to? His disciples. Armies surrounding Jerusalem, waiting for the destruction of the temple in AD 70. You're going to know that it's about to take place. When? It's one of the signs. When there's armies surrounding Jerusalem, ding, ding, ding. All that I've said is about to take place. And here's what I want you to do when that's the case. I want you to get out of the city. If you're outside the city, I don't want you to get in the city. And it's going to go really bad for those of you who are tied to certain things in the world. And for those who move slowly and cannot flee easily, it's going to be difficult for you to get out, but I want you to be aware that those are the things that are going to happen. And we are actually told in Josephus' history that the people of God did flee from the city when those armies began to encroach. And you see the armies, you think, well, if the armies are encroaching, then we're not going to have much time. Oh, no, no. Titus was wise in a sinister way. He surrounded the city of Jerusalem and he stayed there for weeks on end and starved the people of Israel. Didn't allow food to get in and out so they'd be weakened and famished and near the point of death when he would attack. He says, so when the armies show up, know that there's no survival 
inside Jerusalem. And so consider strategic retreat. Flee to the seas. He actually gives a little bit of an escape plan here in the context of the passage telling you if you're located here, here's where you need to go. And if you're located here, here's where you should go. And Josephus says this is exactly what happened when Israel was attacked by the Roman government. He says in his own words, they were like swimmers deserting a sinking ship. Now thousands, of course, fell by the edge of the sword. Many didn't get out. Many didn't escape. In fact, many more didn't escape. And thousands were taken into captivity. It was a horrible scene. It was a Holocaust type of scene. This historical moment marked, as Jesus indicates in this passage, the definitive end of the Israelite era. Definitive end of the Israelite era. And one of the reasons is he gives us a little clue in the text. Did you catch that word desolation? Well, for those of you who are scholars in the Old Testament, that harkens you back to Daniel chapter 9. And if you know Mark's retelling of this particular gospel, he actually helps you even a little bit more. He doesn't just use the word desolation. He uses the abomination of desolation. A a term that Daniel uses to describe a time when the temple will be so desecrated that all sacrifices will have to come to a halt. Well, guess what happened in AD 70? The temple was so desecrated and Jerusalem so destroyed that all sacrifices came to a halt. There was no altar There was no place to offer them. There was no priesthood. All of what was Israel came to a screeching halt in AD 70. And it was a fulfillment of what it is that Daniel had said would happen centuries before. And Jesus tells us as that Israelite era comes to a close, you know what he says there at the end of verse 24? The times of the Gentiles begin. The times of the Gentiles begin. Now let me just give you just a note of what he's saying here. I wish I could, time would fail me to go into the complex relationship between Israel and the church. We won't be able to do that, sadly, this morning. But I will, Lord willing, in the days to come, revisit the end of the book of Daniel. And we'll come back to this passage and we'll talk even in more detail about questions like, is Israel still God's covenant people? And if they are, then what does that mean for Old Testament prophecy? Or has the church become the Israel of God. As Paul talks about in the book of Galatians and what is this relationship between Israel and the church is an incredibly complex discussion. But here's one of the things that we can say clearly from this passage in verse 24, that what we have seen historically since AD 70 and before all the way up into our time is this fundamental reality. The gospel has gone forth from the nations and it has spread. It has spread the time of the Gentiles has happened for the last 2,000 years as every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation begins more and more to have the inroads of the gospel being brought in and people are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. The time of the Gentiles has spread. But I ask you, has that been true among the Israelites, among the Jews? No. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that a partial hardening has happened to the people of Israel. A partial hardening that while the gospel goes forth to the nations, there has been an opening to the gospel in all of the other nations of which the gospel has gone into. But for the people of Israel, there has been generally a hardening. That's what Jesus is describing here in verse 24. 
And what we have actually seen is this universalizing of the kingdom of God is a picture of taking the covenant of God from one nation and spreading it to the nations. That's what's been happening. He says, this is going to happen until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, when he says that, here's what seems to happen in the text. It, it seems that Jesus at this point begins to go looking to the future horizon. He begins to look, oh, the time of the fulfillment of the Gentiles. And he begins to talk not simply about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but he begins to take a look to a future horizon, the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's not what the disciples called him. It's what Jesus called himself. Where does Jesus pick up that title? Well, he picks it up from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel refers to this messianic, apocalyptic figure known as the Son of Man. It's a divine figure. It's a strong figure. It's a warrior-type figure. Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of Man who's going to be coming back. And he begins to tell us about how we can prepare. He begins to give us some instruction in verse 28. Look at what he says. There will be signs... In sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, here's his instruction to us, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption draws near. As you can see, as Jesus in verse 25 begins to speak about this coming of the Son of Man, this future horizon, he says it only comes in the midst of turmoil. Famines and destructions and disasters and wars and people fainting with, with fear and with foreboding. There's a sense in which again, like it was right before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there will be again this sense of even creation itself being rended at its very fabric. In fact, he uses that idea of the sky, the signs of the air, and then he uses the, the, the picture of the sea roaring and toiling, this picture of creation itself coming apart. And, and it's a, what we call in Old Testament language a mirrorism. The thing highest is coming apart and the things lowest are coming apart. It's when you look at your life at particular points and say, there's no good news. He says that's the sense of the time in which the coming of the Son of Man is. Now here's what's fascinating. It sounds a lot like the evening news. It sounds a lot like the evening news. Now, to say that is not to say that Jesus is coming next Thursday. Or to say that Jesus is coming within this generation. If you ever hear me say something like that, disregard it. And then correct me in love. Because Jesus tells us in the larger reading of this particular passage in the book of Matthew, these words, he says, no one knows the time or the hour of my return. Not even me, Jesus says but only the Father Himself. Now, I'm going to give you just some really common sense wisdom for just a second, if you'll stay with me. If Jesus doesn't know when He's going to return, probably none of you do either. And probably not me either. 
That's what this passage is actually saying to us in Matthew. If you, someone tells you, hey, Jesus is coming back on that day, just go. Because exactly what Jesus was afraid would happen to the disciples before AD 70 might happen to you. Many false messiahs. Many false projections. Do we see that kind of stuff happening? Yes, of course we do. All the time with cults rising up and false followings and destructions and all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. Jesus says, we don't forecast my coming, we prepare for his coming. We live with, with an eagerness to sit right where it is that he's called us to be in the time that he's called us to be until he comes. He says we're not to be fearful, we're not to be panicked when there are economic meltdowns. When there's the threat of nuclear warfare, when there are terrorist attacks and there are beheadings on YouTube, we're not to be panicked. We're not to be panicked. He says we're straightened up. There's a soberness that comes with that, and there should be a lifting up, he says, of the chin, a face set towards the horizon. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. Now, let me ask you. When you hear of Iran possessing potentially nuclear weapons that can make their way to the mainland of the U.S., do you straighten up, look to the horizon, say maybe our redemption is near? Or do you, like the rest of the world, companion, fearful, concerned, worried, given over to anxiety, Jesus says this should be the mark of the believer, one who is, who is resting, knowing that the final answers of the end of time and the eternity of his people have been secured already in Jesus Christ. We are to live like those who believe the promises of the gospel. We are to, we are to live like, like Paul calls us to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But to live with a kind of steely fearlessness that's full of faith, not bravado, not ego, a humble brokenness that stays in the midst of the Colosseum being torn to shreds by the lions. That's what we're talking about. Now, you may be asking as I'm asking, how do we prepare for that? And Jesus gives us indications here in this passage. He says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I'm going to ask you, does heaven and earth feel pretty stable to you? Like the soil that your feet are touching right now, it's feel pretty firm, like do you have confidence in it? Jesus says, don't. It's going to pass away. You know, the sun rose in the east. It's slated to set in the west. It's done that for a long time. Jesus says, don't bet your bottom dollar that that will keep happening. Heaven and earth will pass away. Psalm 46, though the earth give way and the mountains tumble into the sea. That's the picture. He says, don't trust in the things of this world. My words will never pass away. Some of us may be tempted to think that talk is cheap. Truth is, it depends on who's doing the talking. Jesus is doing the talking. The maker of heaven and earth is doing the talking. 
And so we can trust Him. We can be still, know that He is God. We can be known in the midst of Him. He can utter His voice. We can be sure, as the psalmist says, we shall not be moved. We confess today that we believe that the grass withers and the flower fades. But do we believe that the Word of the Lord will stand forever? Jesus says, set your attention and your affection there. But He says, secondly, keep a close watch on yourself. Verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life, that this day might come upon you like a trap. Now you can imagine this, the disciples have just heard life-wrecking message from Jesus that in this generation, the temple, Jerusalem, their lives, everything, total upheaval, you don't know when it's going to happen, here are a few of the signs. Some of us would say, I'm going to go find a bar. I'm going to take the edge off of this one and get lost in a bottle for a while. Some of us would say, you know what? Um, I just can't consider that. I got to go shopping. Get some new clothes. I got to go have a fancy meal. I'm going to go watch a movie. Just check out for a little while. Dissipation. Drunkenness. Laziness. Sleeping. Spiritual slumbering. That's what he's saying. Isn't that the tendency when struggle and trial and calamity and catastrophe come into our life? Yeah, it's a huge temptation. He says here, with regards to your heart, he says, be watchful of your heart. That's where it's going to go. I don't know if you noticed that about your heart. You want to go to something that's going to give you quick fixes rather than long-term spiritual health? Jesus says that's our tendency. He says, I want to tell you, disciples, I don't want you to leave here and lose sight of the hope that you have. I want you to keep that chin up. You look to the horizon, I want you to see that your redemption is near. And you think, well, okay, I'm going to watch myself. I'm going to listen to God's word. How does this all come together? And he says, well, I want you to stay awake and pray. How do, Lord, how do I go forward? you got to stay awake and pray. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of God. I find it ironic that in just a few short verses from where we are in Luke 21, the disciples are going to gather with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and fall asleep. Praying. Jesus says, keep watch with me. Pray. He tells us in the parable of the virgins to trim our lamps and stay awake as a holy vigil, alert, wakefulness, looking, being prepared, not letting our guard down. And what happens to us when we're like the disciples? We fall asleep in the midst of praying. It's hard to stay awake and alert in praying. It takes effort. It takes energy. But he says, I want you to escape these things. I don't want these things to befall you. I want you to be prepared for when it is I'm coming. And so take my words. Watch your heart. Give your life away in prayer to the Lord. And what you will find is a dynamic of wakefulness and alertness that's keeping its head facing the horizon and looking for the redemption of God is going to draw near. A kind of character and disposition begins to take hold of us. And he says, that's what I want to see nurtured within you, even though he knows that we're going to fall. I mean, how many of us in here would say we know the Bible like we should? How many of us in here would say, oh, I'm very alert to my heart. I stay awake all the time, prayerful. I rarely sleep. I just stay awake praying. How many of us would say that? 
none of us. Take comfort in this. Jesus, as he charges you in this important and critical truth, he simultaneously is aware that you are but dust and sinful dust at that. He's aware and he's mindful of your condition. And because of that, it is not the perfection of your diligence within these things that ultimately prepares you for Jesus' coming. It's the awareness that Jesus received the apocalyptic judgment of God for you on the cross. Do you see, Jesus is the one who passed through the judgment of the Lord. He's the one who was rent asunder when creation, even at, even at that hill of Golgotha, when the, when the sun went dark and the, the ground shook with an earthquake and graves opened up, we're told in the later narrative of the gospel, there was a rending that was happening in creation and a cosmic battle that took place right there on the cross. It's the realization when we know that Jesus has received the apocalyptic judgment that was once reserved for us, that we can then have the true peace that is offered to us here in the midst of this passage. And so I welcome you this day to see Jesus in the midst of this judgment and to see that though we might sleep like the disciples, he comes and he wakes us up by his grace. He comes back to us and he arouses us. And the greatest hope that we have is not that you will perfectly stay awake. The greatest hope that we have is that Jesus stays awake. Day in and day out, night after night. And he watches over your soul as every hour gets a little closer to his coming. With that knowledge of Jesus' attentiveness to you, wake up in him and be attentive to him. For your redemption and my redemption, it is near. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to confirm these truths within our hearts. Even in the midst of this prayer, make yourself known. For Jesus' sake, amen.